Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices in Real Estate, and welcome to the latest installment of our podcast series. This is episode 23, an interview with Jim Kitai, who's the CEO of Bedrock Detroit, an organization that Jim co-founded with Dan Gilbert, the CEO of Quicken Loans. When Quicken was looking to relocate its headquarters from the suburbs to downtown Detroit back in 2009, Detroit's renaissance has been a headline now for several years, and this week actually will be hosting the leaders of real estate for the ULI spring meeting. But you have to put yourself back in the days of the depth of the financial crisis and what had been 20, 30, or more years of Detroit's being the poster child of gutting of the urban core of what had been one of America's great cities and a city bankruptcy still to come in 2013. Quicken began its move back to the city in 2010, and in 2011, Jim's company started buying and renovating downtown Detroit properties. It is now 2018. In these seven years, Bedrock Detroit has acquired over 100 buildings, mostly within a 10 to 12 block radius of downtown, starting a true urban renaissance in Detroit and a model for revitalization of urban areas that had been given up on across the country and indeed around the world. Our podcast explores Jim and Dan Gilbert's partnership, combining Jim's more traditional real estate and placemaking skill set and Dan's far different new economy worldview. Their plan was audacious, and as Jim said, there was no room or expectation for failure or a plan B. It had to work. This was an eye-opening conversation for me, which I hope you will enjoy as much as I did. Take a listen, and if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show, Rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com with feedback and ideas for the podcast. Enjoy the episode. So, uh, Jim, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm so pleased to have the conversation with you today and to talk about your work in Detroit and a little bit in Cleveland. Um, you know, the headlines in the our world has been that these two cities, but particularly Detroit, had been forgotten, left for dead. I don't know the right words to use. That's 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 old news, Matt. I know, because now it's sexy, hip, and revitalizing, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So really, really excited to, to discuss that. And so maybe I always like to start at the beginning, so I'm curious about where people come from and how they got to the place they are. But before just any headlines on the old headlines and the new headlines in terms of what's going on in Detroit right now. So there is so much going on in Detroit, and we're actually all getting ready for ULI to come back to Detroit after over 40 years, if you can believe that, that ULI has not had one of their meetings in Detroit. So the spring council or the spring meeting this year for ULI in May is going to be in Detroit. So in addition to everything that we normally have going on, we're getting all sorts of, uh, of preparations in order for great tours and making sure that we wow everyone who comes into Detroit. So, but what's what's really happening in Detroit right now is there's a, a tremendous amount of growth and investment going on, and it's not just the fact that we and others are acquiring properties and renovating them, but now the um, ground-up developments are starting to happen, and there's going to be several cranes in the air over the next year or so with some major developments underway, which I assume we'll talk about in our talk today. I think we will, and because to date, the development's been redevelopment, not cranes in the air. Correct. I mean, that's not to say there haven't been a few new buildings, like even, you know, we built a uh, ground-up garage known as our Z Garage, which has been a tremendous success. You know, that was about a 1,300-car parking deck that we did in a really unique way by kind of making it a, a museum. We got 27 art artist muralists from around the world and assigned each one of them a floor and basically said, you know, here's your general theme color, but go at it and do your do your stuff. And so it's turned into this amazing experience that you get to have just when you go park your car in the deck. And then it has retail on the first floor. And um, uh, we created what we call the belt, which is the alleyway between the two sides of the deck, 
which used to just be a, a really rundown, you know, terrible alley that has now turned into a whole little artist alley, uh, kind of great area to hang out that has a couple different restaurants and an art gallery and things like that. We made, we turned something that was just, you know, some surface lots into this tremendous development. So that was an, a, a new development. We also, on our own, built a data center in what's called Corktown here, so that for our own use, we created this great state-of-the-art data center. So those were our two ground-ups that we had done prior to what we're working on now. Everything else has been redeveloped. Got it. You know, it's interesting because in, I came back a year ago from a trip to Tokyo, and in Tokyo, in the very heavily urban areas, an alleyway could be a horrible, scary, quiet, not interesting place, or it could be the liveliest, most crowded place to get 15 different kinds of yakitori all at one moment. Yeah, we we really took a, a strong look at and learning from Europe. I mean, Europe's so good at turning every nook and cranny and alleyway into, like you said, this exciting opportunity to place make, if you will, you know, draw people in and have them want to go to these alleys. And so we're, we're bringing that, that to Detroit where, you know, I think the successful urban environments have made the best out of every little nook and cranny. Absolutely. So let's indeed start at the beginning. Cause I'm curious, you're from the Detroit metro area. You grew up. Correct. You've had a long-term relationship and commitment to the city. Just talk about growing up and growing up in the suburbs and then what the city meant to you when you were growing up. So, yeah, I born and raised in Detroit suburbs, originally in Oak Park, Michigan, and then later grew up uh, in Southfield, Michigan, kind of a, a middle-class uh, neighborhood and, you know, very great place to grow up as far as um, Having lots of different, you know, families and kids raising or families raising lots of kids in these areas. Great public school environment. And downtown to us as we were growing up, and I feel like we were really ripped off because downtown was not really a place that you went to very often. I remember as a kid, you know, my parents bringing me down to what was known as the Hudson's Department Store, which is the largest department store in the country. And that's where we're doing our now Hudson's development on that two-acre site. But, you know, it was an amazing experience. And I, I have never forgotten that memory of what that was like to go in this multi-story department store and kind of separate from my parents and go get lost in there. But other than that, it's not a place that we used to come in and you know, ever come down to go shopping or do things like that because that kind of all went away. Um, we would come down for sporting events. So I, I, I remember doing that, you know, so we would come to the event or we would go to the theater and we'd go to those events and then you'd basically leave. It wasn't like you were staying downtown. It was in for the event and out. And our lives were very much centered around the, the suburbia. Uh -huh. And all of the developers at the time went, you know, built very nice shopping malls in all the suburbs. And so people had no reason to come downtown to shop because you had everything you could want at all of these nice suburban shopping opportunities. And the car companies, the auto companies, wanted people to buy their cars. And so it was advantageous for them to probably have people buying cars and not taking public transportation at the time. And so we all had cars and lived in the suburbs. Sure. So this is the American story. Yeah, this is the American story. Maybe emphasized in Detroit because the car companies were there and so wanted to, to be a testing field for that kind of car culture. Right. I always, you know, I often sit here and think like, what if Detroit would have put in, you know, all of the subways back at the time and had this mass transit that led you, you know, in the various arteries out to even some of these suburbs and like what a different city we would have been as time passed and you, you know you look at the cities that do have them and what a difference that public transportation has made for those cities so i i really feel like you know that had a major effect on us and you know we've had to rebuild now 
a city that had been really ignored for a long time. And it's, it's working because we were losing a lot of our people to other urban environments because that's where people want to live. I mean, the, the young people want to live in urban environments. So we were constantly losing all of our college graduates to go to these other urban environments, not because they wanted to move to, you know, Schaumburg, Illinois. They wanted to live in Chicago or, you know, same thing with New York. They, they weren't moving out to Long Island. They were moving into Manhattan. We knew that we had to do something to change Detroit's urban environment that would allow all of our young people to be attracted to come live, work, and play in the city. So that was, that was the whole mindset and the goal behind what we were doing here. And it's working, by the way. It's changing dramatically. I, I bet it is. And I'm guessing that as a cultural phenomenon in America, it was emphasized in Detroit with that kind of over-reliance on the suburbs for the affluent people. And then the, there's a little bit of corporate headquarters downtown that survived through that period of time. But the rest became largely low income and very heavily African-American, which is great. But that's a change of complexion in the city. Yeah, and there were certainly, you know, the some of the companies that that did maintain themselves down here, and you know, law firms, accounting firms. There's been, you know, a variety of companies that did, you know, make it and stayed downtown and kept their roots here. But it wasn't a big attractor for them to be able to hire employees because that's not where the young people wanted to go. Right. You know, they wanted to have that urban experience. It's not a, a big talent attractor for what was here. And that's what we're building off of right now is we have to keep the talent in Detroit. And there's lots of talent being created here. And now a lot of the talent is staying here. And that's what's continuing to help this whole successful, you know, rebirth of Detroit happen right now. Got it. So let's go backwards a little bit. And so you, you grew up in the suburbs, went to University of Michigan? No, I went to Michigan State, as did Dan Gilbert. Both of us went to Michigan State. Did you know each other? Yes, we, we grew up in the same neighborhood. It's actually, you know, it's funny how many of us all came from that neighborhood and now we're all working together. Um, but yes, he and I lived in the same neighborhood, one year older than him, one grade older. And... Uh -huh. um, over the years, you know, we went to the same elementary, same junior high, high, and same college. We both went to Michigan State. He went to uh, Wayne State Law School. I went to Detroit College of Law, which is now Michigan State College of Law. But yeah, that's where both of our roots came from. And, you know, periodically I would run into him and he was doing his, it was Rock Financial originally. Then it eventually became Quicken Loans. Yep. And, you know, I was watching that develop over the years and kept thinking like, oh, my God, how long is this just going to keep going on and growing? And it just kept getting, you know, bigger and bigger over the years. And I don't know if you want me to get into this now, but at one point he started talking about moving the business or actually at one point he was just like, we, you know, we, we need to expand and get kind of a headquarters. Uh -huh. And he was looking, he was looking at a bunch of different places, you know, a bunch of suburban locations and then started to focus on moving it downtown with this idea of let's get people into this urban environment. And I remember running into him and saying to him, you know, I know you're thinking about moving quick in downtown. It's probably a pretty good time that we should get together and you know buy some buildings downtown together. Because uh -huh. I was in real estate, he was in the, the mortgage business, and you know people who don't necessarily know him, he he responded with, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that." And I sort of half took him seriously, like you know, is he really serious? Does he really want to? And if you know him, he doesn't, you know, he's a, he's a doer and he's a risk taker and he's all about figuring out how to make something happen and a, and a big visionary as to, you know, he, he sort of saw what could be. Then a little time went by and I ran into him again and I, I remember he said, you know, remember what we talked about? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we haven't done it yet. Like, what are we waiting for? 
And I said, so you were really serious? He said, absolutely. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's sit down and have this meeting and figure this out. You know, I think this is the perfect time. We should be doing this. So it was all he had made his decision to, at that point, lease four floors in what was then known as the Copyware Building because they owned that building that they had developed. And instead of per, you know, building a, a ground-up new headquarters at that point, he had this opportunity to lease these four floors in the Copyware Building. So he had made that decision, and he and I sat down and said, let's form a real estate company. I remember being concerned, saying to him, you know, I'm actually a little worried that, you know, there's not going to really be enough for me to do. And he literally like just started laughing at me and said, enough for you to do. We're going to literally change an entire urban environment and grow this urban environment into something that it's never been before. And it's just going to be never ending. And then we're going to do that in Cleveland and maybe in some other urban environments. And to his credit, he really saw what lied ahead. I don't know that he thought we were going to buy as many buildings as we did as quickly as we did either. I think we both sort of thought, you know, we'd start out with a couple buildings, but... Right. Let's pause and just go back for a moment. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt this because no, no this is the story we want to hear. But what had you become? Because you spent 15, 20 years learning the real estate business yep. and developing in the suburbs. Right. So I had gone to law school and I had practiced law for three and a half years and then... I had known that I always, my true love was real estate and I really always wanted to do real estate, but I thought I don't do the, the practicing of law right away after law school. I'll probably never do it. So that's why I did it. And I practiced uh, both real estate law and bankruptcy law, which ended up to be a really nice cocktail combination. Sometimes they tend to be the same. Yeah, right. of understanding that whole business. So it was it was two good areas to practice in. But then when I had this opportunity to go work for a developer at the time, um, I jumped on it because that was what I really wanted to do. And that was my true love. So I started out working for a company called Etkin Equities, which I eventually became a um, half owner of over the years, but that company was all about suburban development. And we pretty much did like class A suburban mid-rise office buildings with some shopping center developments and some hotel developments. For how long did you do that work? I did that for 22 years. Okay. Until this opportunity came up. And it was, you know what, it was, it was the right time and the right opportunity. You know, things had changed in the real estate market. Detroit, you know, was at a point where there was great opportunity to start acquiring in Detroit. And it really was just an incredible opportunity for me to be able to play such an important role and changing the city of Detroit. And so I, I just felt like I, I really just like had to pinch myself and say, you know, wow, this is an unbelievable opportunity. You can't pass this up. You've got to figure out how to do this and make this happen. And it's, it's going to be like nothing else that's ever happened before. <laughs> so interesting conversation. So there you are with Dan. He offers this. You're 20 years into a real estate career. You're a successful suburban developer. He offers this really interesting idea. He's a massively creative guy. He has a money and resources. He's a visionary. You scared? You excited? You're making a clean break to do a very different thing. Yeah, great question. Um, yes, I was very excited about it. Somewhat apprehensive about it because I didn't know if it was going to necessarily work. Although I believed in it, um, and I saw the vision. I, again, I didn't totally at the time get how big it really was. <laughs> there was no question I was apprehensive about should I be doing this? Should I be changing my whole career, like you said? Um, and the good part about it was is that I kept all my real estate from my old life and I just sold off you know, my interest in the management company and the operations side of that business and let my ex-partner 
operate all that because I knew I really wasn't going to have the time to do that while I was focusing on what we were doing here in Bedrock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You decide to jump into this together. It's not only a switch in direction, but it's also going to that place. Maybe it was so beaten down you couldn't fail, but also you're just going to a place that no one had gone before, right. given up on. So I, 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 I didn't believe that we couldn't fail because, by the way, we've had failures along the way because that you have to fail in order to succeed. And so I wasn't really afraid of failure because I knew we were going to have our ups and downs along the way. But, but I also believed that it was something that could be successful and probably would as long as we never had a plan B. So we, we literally only had a plan A that this was going to work. So it was always pedal to the metal. And it was always plan A. And the other thing I knew is that I was fortunate enough to have a partner that had the resources and was willing to use those resources to make this happen. Absolutely. And you also had the ability to bring a major tenant downtown. So that can drive a whole lot of efficiencies. That definitely helped in the beginning because you know, it's like a movement. Whenever you look at like how a movement starts, while that first joiner of the movement is, is important, you know, the starter of it, right. it's really the, the subsequent people that join in on that movement that really make it a successful movement. So it couldn't be just about us. It had to be about others. So, you know, my, our whole goal and drive as a team is to attract other businesses, other companies, other retailers, other developers to do what we're doing. This cannot be done on our own. Got it. So it was very important to us to constantly drive other people to do and join. Absolutely. And what, what year are we talking about? So Dan and I met and got this all organized by the end of 2010. I think I formed the company at the end of 2010, and we did our first acquisition January 27th of 2011. So it's really only been a little over seven years. Holy which cow. Is crazy. So describe what you found when you came to town, and then just the volume of deals, and then we'll get to kind of when it, when it gelled and how it gelled. Yeah. So. When I came here, it was a, a very kind of quiet environment. There weren't people, you know, walking up and down the streets on a regular basis. It was, you know, a lot, a lot of vacant buildings that had been ignored for 20, 30 years, you know, that just were very full of debris and, and destruction that had happened and people who had pilfered the buildings of materials over the years. Um, so it was really kind of a, a sad environment when you first got down here. It was not full of energy and active. Um, but as we started to acquire and, you know, put the money into these buildings, we realized that we could bring these buildings back to life. And it was very important for us to respect the integrity of these buildings and make sure that we kept the beautiful architecture that was intended for the buildings. So that does cost more money a lot of the times to make that happen. We were very careful about that. Yeah. So in real estate, we talk about the bones. So you had bones and you had authenticity. Yeah. They're overused words sometimes, but without that, it, it's the suburbs again, downtown, but here you had the bones to make that work. Right. And it, we had several challenges along the way too, because you know we, we were using the historic tax credits and in order to use the historic tax credits, they want you to almost take it back to a date certain that the tax credits are being based off of. And so it was sometimes hard to accommodate what the tenant of today wanted with what, how they wanted us to leave the building. You know, like, hey, you have to leave this corridor and you can't open this up, even though the tenant wants this collaborative open work environment. And we're like, 
no, we have to be able to satisfy what the tenants want. And so we fought hard on that and, you know, actually brought the Secretary of Interiors from Washington to Detroit and started to tour them around the buildings and explain to them, you know, you need, you need to understand how this works. These are what the tenants want. And this is what your people are asking us to do. And eventually we were able to compromise and make a lot of that work, which is the intent of it anyway. Yeah. Was that compromised on your deals or do they change the program to let this happen in other cities in the same way? Probably both. You know, they, it's discretionary. They can, they can make, they can approve, they, they have, you know, standards they go by, but they can, you know, give their little bit of leeway here and there to make it work for their needs and the tenants that want to be in the building's needs. Uh-huh. And so let's get a sense of the scale at which you operated, because I think you bought 90 buildings or something like that over the, a pretty quick period of time. Yeah, we're over 100 now. You know, I think maybe in the first five years, maybe we bought like 90. Uh-huh. I don't know. I'd have to go look at the exact numbers, but I know we're over 100 now. It's kind of funny, you know, a lot of developers, you know, might do an acquisition once a year, once every two years. We were getting pretty close to closing every week. So it became quite the crazy environment around here with getting buildings under contract and, uh, doing due diligence and closing. And we kind of called it, we had a lot of different but doable deals because there were several instances where, you know, where these people, like we would try to go get a water reading and the water meters had been torn off the buildings years ago. So we had to figure out how do we do this? How do we get this all worked out? So there were all sorts of interesting unique type of deals and things that we learned over time. And how many, What what's the geographic area of the majority of these buildings? Are we talking 10 blocks, 15 blocks? The majority of the buildings are probably within a 10, 12 block radius. Uh Um, There's a couple, you know, like I said, we did our Corktown buildings, which are, you know, a couple miles down the road. Um, But for the most part, the general concentration is probably in like that 10 to 12 block radius. And and Detroit has what's called the 7.2 mile area. These are certainly all within the 7.2, but ours ourselves are in the very much, mostly the CBD. Got it. And it's interesting. I think of the stories of how Walt Disney created Disney World in Orlando and they secretly bought up all these buildings. Did you find when, you know, towards the latter years here, was there increased competition to buy these buildings? Very much so. (laughs) Yes. That has changed tremendously since the beginning. We we didn't have the competition in the beginning, and people didn't really believe like we did. And then mm-hmm. as they saw that it really wasn't just us that was doing this, you know, that there's other people that are interested in other companies. I mean, I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, they're leasing, you know, they're buying these buildings, but they're leasing them all to themselves. And what people don't realize is we're probably only like 32% of our entire portfolio occupied by all of our family of companies. Right. There's a tremendous amount of other tenants that are filling up all these buildings that have no relation to us whatsoever. Uh-huh. And, and let's talk about that because you've mentioned a number of businesses that have come to town and maybe businesses that have been created around this new Detroit. But talk about the both ex, kind of existing companies and maybe incubator companies and the make it, build it business as well. The maker business, that's the right word. Right. So... Lots of, um, you know, we had our own, excuse me, startup company, you know, startup uh, Detroit Venture Partners, we call it, where a lot of the startup companies were sharing space and and growing into these, you know, early stage tech companies. And as they grew, they were venturing out and, and leasing spaces. And so we were making room for additional new startup companies to come in. And the spaces were starting to fill up by Again, not just our tech companies, but other tech companies as well. You know, over time, the traction just continued to to build. And so, you know, now we have tenants like Microsoft and Google and StockX and Twitter and Snapchat and Pinterest and Detroit Labs. And, you know, they just keep growing. We've got several deals we're working on right now that will be announced soon. 
of additional tech companies that are moving into these spaces, in addition to a lot of the service com- you know, firms as well. And then the retail scene and the rest- restaurant scene has been absolutely out of control, great and positive. The art scene, uh, the queue line that, that it has been installed for transportation, and I better stop talking or you're not going to be able to ask me questions. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's what you want to think about this is from the standpoint of all the buildings you've built, the tenants that have happened that have gelled the downtown to a new place. Some of the companies, for some reason, I keep thinking of Shinola, maybe because my daughter has their watch. It was really important. But um, so you think of it from each of those perspectives. And then you had also spoken a few minutes ago about, you know, having either competition or collaborators or peers and colleagues in the business. So talk about the peers and colleagues who are also doing what you do. So um, there's been a lot of um, competition now, a lot in the residential end as well. So I think a lot of um, developers have realized that there is such an attraction here, and it, it was almost impossible to find an apartment down here because the demand was far exceeding the supply. And so several other other developers have acquired, renovated, and been leasing out their buildings. Some have sold, and others are now continuing to raise the rents as the demand continues to increase. There's um, ground up, even our development called uh, City Modern at Brush Park, where we have 400 residential units, uh, including several townhomes for sale, carriage homes for sale that have been a huge success. And uh, people are buying those. The first move-ins will probably be probably in the next three months, maybe. So it's getting pretty close to where people are going to start to move into those. So the, the competition is definitely there. And obviously, that's driving the price of these acquisitions up much higher than we probably all had thought they were going to get this quickly. Parking, we've acquired a bunch of parking decks over time as part of our acquisitions. So parking has become another great asset to have, and the parking rates have continued to grow as the demand has continued to increase. And people, you know, part of the problem of, of being in Detroit is you know, these people that have come from the suburbs, they're used to pulling up to their building and being able to walk, park at or adjacent to their building and walk in. So we're having to teach people about how the urban environment works and that, you know, number one, you don't have to park right at your building or right next to your building. It's okay to walk a couple blocks or even take the queue line or some other form of uh, public transportation or a shuttle service to be able to get you from where you park to where you work. And it's it's a learning curve, you know, so that's, we really get that question almost immediately when for people first are shopping and looking at space to lease, like, where are we going to park? So it's driven the, the demand up and the rates up for all the parking that's close by, but also educating them. And, it, and they do learn, by the way, after they're down here and living it, they, they all learn. Oh, it's interesting. I, I, I live within walking distance of my office, which is my greatest luxury. I barely drive when I'm in town. Right. I Uber or I walk. Right, but you're you're living in a community that, you know, knows from that. We're used to it. Right. They don't even <laughs> think about it. It's crazy how, you know, we're having to learn how to be an urban environment. Yes. So our, our world changes, but it's changing a, a lot for you. T- talk about Talk about your partnership with Dan and what that looks like and how he remains involved and, and the company you've built, but, but how that, the collaboration with him, how does that work? So Dan absolutely loves Detroit. I think it's probably his number one passion. So he wants to be in the know and be as involved as he can, especially when it comes to talking about the vision and, you know, where we're driving. So while he's certainly pulled from a lot of different ends because he's involved in a lot of different businesses, when it comes time, you know, I'll put the buildings under contract and then I sit down and and sort of walk through with him. You know, this is the strategy behind 
acquiring this particular building and why we should acquire this particular building. And for the most part, he's, you know, relying on me to sort of guide him and me and my team to kind of guide him on what's right and what we should be doing. But he definitely has his thoughts and views and says, hey, what if we did this? And, you know, how about if we did that? And, you know, I think this might be a better building for, you know, this particular tenant. So he loves to be a part of that planning and vision. I would say, you know, most of the time he's got the, the right idea. He's very bright. And, you know, I love to, uh, I love to pick his brain and get that guidance from him because he thinks out of the box and, you know, might come at it from a different thought than I had, who's living it all the time. And he's allowed to, he, he has the luxury of, you know, being able to kind of look at it from a different end and angle. And it often comes up with a, a good suggestion. So he's very much a part of it. It's just, you know, the day to day, he's obviously tied up and same thing with, you know, operating the buildings, you know, we're, 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 running all the buildings through our own management company and leasing them through our leasing company. But he often will make, you know, a suggestion if he's walking by, Hey, why don't you guys try doing this? You know, and I think the tenants would really appreciate, we really err on going above and beyond the tenant experience for everyone. So we do things that no other landlord would ever think about doing. And we spend money where I think no other landlords would spend money to create a special environment that people can really learn how to, you know, collaborate like in one of our lobbies because we set it up that way. I think the definition of landlords changing drastically and quickly. The WeWork phenomenon and the major landlords across the country are doing again the passive landlord days of the passive landlords over in a lot of respects. Yeah, and speaking of WeWork, you know, we did uh, two deals with WeWork here. That have been very successful. And, you know, again, that's another thing that we saw as another great way to allow tenants to move their businesses down downtown and start to grow them here so that, you know, if someone had the opportunity, they could do a one-person office, a two-person office, whatever it is, you know, it, it certainly accelerated the time of getting more and more companies to be able to come downtown quicker. Uh-huh. It, it's interesting thinking about your partnership with Dan, I think of real estate and real estate training as kind of old old economy entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I think of your partnership with Dan as bringing in a storied new economy entrepreneur. And the lessons probably hit down at the granular level, which you mentioned, which is maybe at the tenant experience, but it probably also hits at the at the highest level part, which is let's go do this. Let's go make a change that's discontinuous. Yeah. And and one thing he really taught me many things, but one thing that I really gained from him is I found in my old world, all of the developers were very closed the book about what they were doing and how they were doing it. And, it, you know, secret sauce. Dan is the opposite. And he's like, don't hide it from them. Help them share the information with them. The more people that do what we're doing, the better this is for everyone. The more competition, the better it is for everyone. So I go in the opposite direction. When I, if a developer calls me up and says, you know, I'm interested in Detroit, I'm like, great. Let me tour you through everything we've done. Let me teach you what we know. And let me help you to acquire something and compete with me. And it's fine. And it does, it, it really, it works. If you, I'm telling you, the more you help people, the better it is. I think we, and the tech business has taught us that in so many respects, but this one's an obvious one also from an economic standpoint, is if you have no competition and you own Detroit and there's no trades going on, then your value is is stunted. And if there's competition, it's a lively market. And everyone raises the bar, your bar raises a whole lot, especially given how you acquired these properties. Yep. There is self-interest, but self-interest coincides with group interest at the same time. We say doing well by doing good. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how this radiates through the city. So you're in this smallish area within the central business 
business district of Detroit. Detroit has been, outside of the suburbs, maybe a d- depressed place. How has the ripple effects brought what, – what have the ripple effects been for the rest of the economy in Detroit itself? I think it's been a, a, a tremendously good ripple effect because we work very much hand-in-hand hand with you know, the city, the city council, the, the mayor, the governor, the state – um, we're, we're very big into this placemaking of helping to, you know, clean up and create these experiences in all of the public parks. We created, um, what we called our Detroit winter markets this winter, which were bringing in these glass huts that we worked with, you know, the downtown development partnership. So you bring in like these little glass huts that the retailers set up in and it just allows a lot more people to have that opportunity to, you know, sell their goods to a lot of the Detroiters and it draws the people downtown where they realize that they can have all of this urban shopping experience. And so I think we've learned that working with the community and, you know, we've, we're involved in, you know, helping to do training for workforce employment because that's so important to be able to train more people. We have just constantly lended our expertise as much as we possibly can to help the city to do more affordable housing, to do something called Rehab Than Ready, which is um, getting rid of all of the blight and going into neighborhoods and investing and fixing up houses to help the neighborhoods to increase their values. So all sorts of things to help the community. And and if you ventured into blighted areas or has some of the competition that you helped make comfortable to spend more time in Detroit, has that eased the way for others to come in to invest? Yes, very much so. Right. So I'm going to quote something from your website because, unfortunately, you guys did not make the Amazon top 20 list. And I'm reading a quote from Dan. It says, we're still dealing with a unique radioactive-like reputational fallout of 50 to 60 years of economic decline, disinvestment, municipal bankruptcy, and all the other associated negative consequences of that extraordinarily long period of time. This lingering negative perspective has unfortunately survived our impressive progress. So what's next? How does that continue over the next five, 10 years? I I think we have to pay attention to that and really hone in on what the perception is, has been and is. And although it is changing, because it is, I'm just, anytime I go out of town and people say, you know, where are you from? And when you answer Detroit, it's a real different response today than it ever was. Um, But as Dan said, this is, you know, 50 to 60 years of decline and it doesn't happen overnight. We realize that while we've made a lot of progress, you know, we're probably in the second inning. There's, there's so much more to go and we have to listen to what other people are perceiving. And we have to, I think, get that, public transport in place. There's got to be a regional transit, which I know was just uh, announced by the Wayne County Executive Warren Evans. Um, It's very important, I think, that we get rid of and continue to do everything we can to get rid of the negative consequences, as he said, that came from that long period of time. We have to continue to show the rest of the country, world, whatever it is, that there is opportunity in Detroit and you can come here and you can affect the outcome. And that's not something you can do, you know, just anywhere. Right. I I don't think I've heard another story of a six to seven year transformation at the rapidity and depth that you have in Detroit. Yeah, me either. And we've understood the importance of bringing arts and culture here too. I think it's just so important, and it really makes a huge difference. Well, arts and culture matters. It's interesting because also those people want to can't afford to live in a place like San Francisco, right. which might be their their ideal headline, 
But if they can live in Detroit for a quarter of the price and have many of the benefits of the lifestyle and something growing as you're describing, then that may be an easy choice. So it's going to really appeal to people. I think it is really appealing. And what we have found too is, you know, people do talk about what's happening in Detroit, but it's really important to get people to come to Detroit because once you come here, you get to really feel the energy and experience what's really going on here. Cause you can show videos, you can tell people you can, it's not the same as being here. That's why we're so happy that ULI is happening too, because, all these people that have talked about coming here are now going to really come here. And I'll be there, and I can't wait. Let's generalize this before we we finish our conversation. Let's generalize this to other similar cities that may not have been as deep in the problems as Detroit, but still where the downtowns were more or less emptied out. The life was sucked out. And I don't think Cleveland's quite there, but that's the other city you're currently in. Let's talk about your work in Cleveland, and then maybe are there other cities that you guys will go to? Cleveland, um, yes, we are in Cleveland pretty big right now. Um, We've learned a lot from what we've done in Detroit, and we're going to use those experiences to help what we're doing in Cleveland. Um, Cleveland, obviously, we we went where we had, you know, an, an investment already, so Obviously, the Cavaliers with the Quicken Loans Arena um, was a, a big investment. We have our Jack Casino, which is in the Higby Building right in downtown Cleveland. Anywhere that we had an investment already, like Detroit or Cleveland, is, is where we continue to build that growth up. So, you know, we've acquired some assets in Cleveland, including uh, the Ritz-Carlton, which we just are completing a full renovation of it's probably one of the nicest ritzes in their in their hotel portfolio now it's absolutely beautiful and i think people are really getting blown away when they walk into the doors of that place now uh-huh. and it was tired and it was time we acquired uh, the may company department store which is a million square foot department store that's just been sitting vacant um, other than a cooking school that they had on the first floor you know, we're getting ready to redevelop that and continue to help the city of Cleveland to do a lot of what's happening in Detroit. And and there's parts of Cleveland that are a little bit ahead of Detroit. You know, they had some of the better restaurants and a couple of the retailers, more hotels. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously they have the Cleveland Clinic. So there's lots of things there. But um, we feel with our strategic investments there, we can really help Cleveland as well. That's great. And are you looking at other cities? Not right now. Really have our hands full with how much we got going on between Detroit and Cleveland. So not really looking at another city at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it won't ever happen. It's just not where we're where we're at right now. Right. Well, it's also back to your prior comment, which I just loved, which is that you're, you're open book and you're about to welcome the real estate industry to Detroit to see what it is you're doing. And it may not have to be you. You have some secret sauce, maybe, but you know the real estate industry can learn and grow, and then go after these downtowns everywhere. Correct. As an industry, that is maybe the most exciting part of the business right now—the ability to do that. And and even this will sound contradictory to what we've been talking about, but the downtowns of the small suburbs, right, or the big suburb, the suburban downtowns, will then start transforming as well. And have because you need a there there for people within a 10 or 15 minute drive of their home. Yeah, I very much believe in, in what you're saying there. I, this this increasing, uh, the building of uh, the downtown only helps everyone else. And all, like you said, the suburban areas outside of the downtown. It's really a positive win-win for everybody. Agreed. Anything we're missing in this conversation that you want our listeners to hear about what you guys have been doing? Good question. You know, we have uh, a lot of hotels coming online right now, including, and you, you brought up Shinola before, the first ever Shinola Hotel, which is a boutique <laughs> brand that we're, <laughs> that we're doing. And that's opening in November of this year. And that is going to be a really super cool, really you know, nice experience hotel. 
right in downtown Detroit. And, you know, a lot of the Shinola feel to it. Uh-huh. And uh, we're really excited about that. There's a couple of developers out of New York. Uh, one's called Ash, and they're opening the Siren Hotel, which they took an old building downtown that they've converted, and it was in really bad shape. And they have brought that back to life, and it's going to be absolutely beautiful. Obviously, the Aloft has been tremendously successful. Element is another hotel they're working on. The Book Cadillac has been a huge success. So, oh, the Foundation Hotel is another boutique hotel that just opened, and that was the old Detroit Firehouse that they converted. And these are all other developers besides us. So, you know, really, I think, positive for the city itself to have all this happening, all this development by multiple different developers. Fantastic. I, I know I sort of t- touched on this before, but to me, I I just I feel so lucky to have been allowed this opportunity to be able to impact the outcome so much and to help help others. I mean, the, the fact that I know that all that we're doing is helping so many people in a city that was, you know, not going in a good direction is just such a rewarding feeling to be able to be so instrumental in making this happen for the community. It's really good. And I guess the only other thing I'd add is, you know, anyone who's listening to this this podcast that wants to join in on this opportunity, we're looking for great talent to come join us. So hey, wait a minute. I'm a headhunter. Send me your resume. <laughs> wait, no. Send it to me. <laughs> I'll get it to him. I get a little piece <laughs> oh, yeah, of the better, action. <laughs> better yet, send it to you, right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> That's fine. I just want I just want to <laughs> continue to have people join us. So it's great. We need the talent. Cool. Hey, last question. If you had one piece of advice for a young person getting into the business and wanting to make a difference in and developing a career in real estate, besides joining your company, what would that be? Go to a city where you can, I guess, affect the outcome and learn. Because my biggest advice is it's okay to to fail because, and don't be afraid to fail because that's how we all learn and how we all get better. So don't be afraid of failure. Embrace it and learn from it. Got it. Wise words for the end of the conversation. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for the time. Uh, Jim, I'm going to meet you in a month because I'm on a couple of tours. And even if, if, if you're not hosting it, I'll find you anyhow. I'm looking forward to it, Matt. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.